socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome to episode 76 of You Don't Have to Yell, available right here where you're listening or on the web at www.ydhty.com. It is your resident bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And if you weren't somewhat distracted by the events of the past week, then you have a clarity of focus that rivals that of the Buddha himself. Now, at the core of last week's riot was frustration. And at the core of that frustration are a good chunk of people mistrustful of a government that they feel left them behind. And I'm not justifying their philosophy, and I am certainly not justifying their actions. But without truly examining how we engineer America's prosperity engine and the injustices that exist within it, things are only going to get worse. And to that end, this week, we're going to examine a decades-long pattern in this country that has led to much of the decay and decline we see today. After World War II, America embarked on an enormous infrastructure initiative, which included our interstate highway system, and resulted in the creation of the suburban sprawl we know today. And we take for granted the fact that this strategy ran counter to thousands of years of human civilization and also had the effect of spreading out the tax base and lowering property values to a degree where many cities and towns sit on the brink of insolvency right now. Now, this week's guest aims to change that. Chuck Marone, a civil engineer by trade, founded the not-for-profit Strong Towns, which provides cities and towns with resources on how they can engage in more fiscally sustainable planning and development. And in our conversation, we discuss what's wrong with the way we build and maintain public works projects here in the United States, how we can fix it, and why it's more economically beneficial to pay someone to dig a ditch and fill it back in than it is to actually build something else. You know you're going to have to listen to find that one out. I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. Chuck, I, I confessed to you before we hit record that I've been stalking you and, and Strong Towns for a while. A listener shot me an email, kind of turned me on to Strong Towns, turned me on to what you were doing. And you know, one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is the, the importance of local rule in the United States and the way we've kind of devolved into this nationalized dialogue where, for example, today... Uh, on the very day we're speaking, the entire nation is fixated on a state that most of them don't live in. And uh, and so really what, what I always love to do is if there are folks who have strategies around really you know, decentralizing power, really putting power back into the local level, that's, that's something that really, um, really just interests me. And uh, so all that being said... Um, I'd love for the audience, first and foremost, to get an introduction to, to to Strong Towns and what you're doing. So could you just describe the the mission to the folks listening? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Um, so glad you're here. Yeah, no, it's, it's nice to chat. Uh, Strong Towns is, uh, our mission is to support uh, a financial model uh, for communities that allows them to become financially strong and resilient. When when we look at cities today, what we see is that they are stuck in a system, uh, as you say, a, you know, a top down centralized system, mm-hmm. uh, centralized from a government standpoint, centralized from a market standpoint. Uh, that is really brutal to them. Uh, gives them a, a lot of options that are are are, are not very good. Uh, we have grown our cities into insolvency and that is affecting everybody's lives. It's affecting the way people uh, go about, you know, buying housing. It, it affects the way people commute, the way people get around. It affects the way we interact with each other. And, and as we've seen 
you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, it, it, it's affected, you know, how our, our lives are run, how we live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we make our cities so fragile financially, uh, we, we do, we do make them, uh, places where we don't control our own destiny, where places where, you know, as, as people coming together to try to make decisions about what we want our lives to be like, what we want our communities to be like, uh, we, we, we find that we are subject to these, uh, these forces outside our control. And so Strong Towns is, is a lot about explaining that and helping people understand, uh, kind of the water we swim in. But then also uh, getting the, the the tools and the, the knowledge uh, to basically take control yourself to to for communities to step up and say, all right, uh, you know, I live in the city of Brainerd, Minnesota. Uh, we we may not be able to do everything for ourselves, but we sure can chart our own path a, a little bit more confidently if we just take you know some simple steps. So we're all about sharing this message and helping communities empower themselves. And so what, what prompted you to, to start the organization? I started writing a blog back in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 47. 2008 was the second financial crisis of my life. The first one was my college one where I lost money on Yahoo stock and, and other stupid things, which was, <laughs> yeah. you know, really good training for a young man. Um, yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm the sucker at the card table here in in financial markets. Yeah. Uh, by the time we got to the housing crisis, I'm not going to say that I called the housing crisis, but I was running my own engineering and planning firm at that point. And our business started to crater in 2006, largely because we were in the permitting stream. So before you can default on a mortgage, you have to build a house. And before you could build a house, you had to come and talk to me. Mm-hmm. So our work dried up in 2006. Uh, I had been talking to cities prior to that about just the, the things that we were doing. You know, my job was to advise them and, and, and we had the engineers and, and the project developers and everybody saying, build this, build this. And, and, and I was running the math on these projects saying that this is not a good project. I mean, sure, it helps us out in the short term, but long term, we're going to, we're going to go broke. I mean, this is, a, this is for every dollar we're bringing in, we're committing to spending four, five, ten dollars in the future. Mm. We, we can't do this. And so by the, by the time you got to 2008, I had years of advising against things that were now blowing up in our faces. And we were facing this massive, you know, economic crisis that was brutal for cities and brutal for local communities and brutal for individuals. And I didn't really want to be the guy who said, well, I told you so, you know, cause that, that's not like a, no one likes that person. Yeah. Um, so my outlet was to sit down and write. And so I just, you know, as kind of a form of therapy, three days a week, sat down and started writing a blog. And as I say, the rest is history. I mean, I, I was writing for my friends and, and colleagues, really writing for myself, trying to explain things to my dad is what I, I like to say. Okay. Um, you know, I write at a level where my dad, who's, you know, retired teacher, so a smart guy, but, you know, not involved in cities or any or finance or any of that. I try to write so he can grasp it. And things just took off. Um, I wound up leaving the uh, leaving my practice, closing my firm uh, in 2012 and, and full-time committing myself to whatever this was going to be. Uh, just to fast forward today, uh, you know, it's the beginning of 2021. Last year, we reached over 2 million different people. We had 2 million unique uh, readers on our site. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're changing the way cities are talking about and, and communities of people, really, not local governments as much as, you know, there's some of that, but as much as the, you know, the, the building developing professions, people in communities who care about this stuff, uh, we're reaching them with a, a message and it's starting to really transform the way they, they talk about and, and, and go about their business of building cities. That's cool. And there's, there's some stuff I want to talk about a little later on about kind of what makes a good project and, and some of the ways cities are, are, are adapting. Um, one of the things I was thinking as you were telling me about starting this in 2008 is I remember distinctly the phrase that was uttered over and over again during the financial crisis when they 
introduced that first round of stimulus was shovel ready projects. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm, I'm just picturing you sitting there at your, at your laptop, just fuming every time you hear that. There's a lot of anger in that those early days of writing. If you yeah. go back, it's 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 almost embarrassing because if you go back and read the stuff from 2008 and nine and ten, it's a it's a I'm a very angry person. So yeah. Well, uh, I think I, I think you were uh, among the majority back in 2008. So I don't think anyone's going to fault you sure. for that. And and so one of the things you you mention in in a lot of the uh, material on strong towns is that. America entered in an, an unsustainable pattern of development after World War II. So what what happened exactly? I, I think it's important to 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 be as empathetic and understanding as we can. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I talk about in my book my grandfather who was a great man. Uh, he was a Marine in World War II. He was actually the first group into Nagasaki after the the bomb was dropped. Um, oh. So this was a, you know, a, a very tough man, a very brave man, someone who had lived through the Great Depression, lived through this war, uh, got back from this war and really faced a great unknown. You know, was our economy going to slide back into depression? Were we going to do something new? And this group of Americans, we, you know, have, have given them the title, the greatest generation now. Uh, decided that they were going to embark on this great new experiment to transform the continent. Uh, there's a lot of idealism with this, a lot of notion that, you know, we can give everybody, uh, a, a, you know, a, 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 a place of their own, a home to live in, a yard. Uh, we can use this, this automobile innovation and all the stuff around it to create growth and prosperity. You know, I'll pause and note that it didn't mean for everyone at least not at first, you know, the idea was, uh, let's, let's do this. We had the GI bill and essentially we, we created this new covenant of here's how we were going to build, transform, like really reinvent America. Uh, we built the interstates, we built the suburbs. And the, the thing is the growth from doing that was tremendous. If you go out and build a new highway and open up a whole bunch of land, you create tremendous opportunity for people to build homes and strip malls and, uh, you know, big box stores and shops and, and fast food restaurants and gas stations. And in an economy where we measure success by the number of transactions, you know, the, the, um, the essentially like the raw amount of things that happen, uh, this is an easy way to generate GDP. This is an easy way to create jobs and an easy way to create growth. The problem with the transaction, uh, is that, uh, it's, it, you know, it's a one, we build a highway, it's built. Now we have a highway we have to maintain. Mm-hmm. When you go back to the old depression saying, you know, we will pay someone to dig a ditch and then fill it back in. Um, that's great because at the end of the day, you have nothing, you know, you, yeah. you've, you, you don't have any long-term obligation. Well, you know, the, the infrastructure people said, well, we can do better than that. Instead of having someone dig a ditch and fill it back in, let's have them build a bridge. And then we got a bridge and it's like, great. That's wonderful. Except now you have a bridge to maintain. Um, if we look at local governments and, and I think it's important to point out in our phrasing, local governments is the way we together at the local level take collective action. It's very different than state government and federal government, uh, which I think are more distant and and opaque and and non-responsive at the local level. This is how we literally like have always throughout all of history worked together to get things done. The, The equation for local governments was we'll give you a lot of growth today in exchange for enormous long-term liabilities in the future. And, and, and what we see is that, you know, the first generation of this after World War II, uh, was explosive. It, it was gangbusters. It was great growth. This was a, this was a sugar high of the highest order financially. Mm-hmm. As you go out in time, uh, you know, the sugar buzz starts to wear off and all these pipes have to be fixed and all these roads have to be maintained and all this stuff has to be taken care of. And when you look at the tax base that was created, because understand this is no longer the, you know, the, the, the gross old city where all this density is in place and everybody lives on top of each other, which, oh, by the way, uh, you know, we, we, we were starting to fix in the twenties and actually cities were becoming very nice. 
uh, and, and we're trending in, in that direction. And, you know, I think you can look today and when you put good sanitation in a city and you take care of things and you maintain things, they're actually wonderful places to live. Back then, the idea was, well, let's just gut the cities. Let's just empty them out across the countryside. Well, you you spread out a population over a huge area at enormous cost. And what you don't have is enough tax base, enough wealth to actually take care of all the public promises that go along with that. And so, you know, over time, cities borrow money. They raise taxes. They lower services and lower quality of life and, and, you know, become more and more dependent on the federal government, the state government to come in and essentially prop up this system. You know, how, do, how do we get more sugar high so we can keep going? And that's really where we find ourselves. Yeah. And so it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it seems the equation effectively is with lower density, you effectively increase the maintenance cost per taxpayer. Because is that, am I wrong there? Or yeah, is that- no, I, I always push back on that. And okay. let me just do it kindly. Cause I, I know what you're saying. And I, yeah. I think in a broad sense, you're right. Yeah. I, I think the problem with that and the caveat with that is that a lot of time planners and, you know, development professionals key in on the term density there. And so they go out and build density and you can build density in ways that is just ridiculously not productive financially. I mean, the big tower in the parking lot in the middle of nowhere is an amazing amount of density, but it doesn't do anything for you. So I think what's more important or the way I would describe it is, you know, density tends to be an outcome of productive development patterns, but they're, they're not necessarily the cause. If you build things in a way that uh, can evolve over time can renew itself and rejuvenate itself, can, can grow like an organic system grows where things become more intense and, and more developed over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you see is that even with single family homes, even with modest, you know, densities of development, you can actually get things that are very productive. Um, what we have done is we go out and build the final version of something right off the bat. You know, it, it would be as if, you know, your child was born, uh, as a 45 year old adult. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem with that is you really don't know. I mean, a 45 year old adult is the culmination of 45 years of inputs, you know, mentally, uh, physically, uh, biochemically. If you just emerge something and you say, I'm going to build it and now it is done. Uh, what you've robbed is you've robbed that place of not only the learning that goes along with being assembled mm-hmm. for that place and that time with those people, but you've robbed it of its ability to adapt and change over time and respond to new needs and new people and, and, and new desires. Um, so we, we've created a static development pattern that the underlying financial part of it is unproductive. It, it, it is insolvent. And those two things just are a disaster together. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go on a little non sequitur here. Yeah, go for it. Because, you know, when you were talking about kind of giving birth to the 45 year old person, <laughs> um, I was, I was thinking about a story I heard. This is a couple of years ago uh, about real estate development out in China. And they, they kind of went through the same sort of unproductive housing boom we went through. And there was this one development outside of Shanghai. It was effectively a replica English village called Thamestown. Yeah. Like complete. Did you hear about this or no? Oh yeah. I mean, China is full of these, you know, ghost town developments. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, This is the power of it's, it's funny because I grew up in the eighties when communism was bad. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's easy for me to, you know, look in a cynical way at the centralized top down totalitarian, uh, China model and say, yeah, this is what you get. You, you can in that model create, uh, lots of growth very quickly. I mean, China's had very high growth rates. You can engineer that by going out and just building stuff. But what you lose in the uh, more messy American model is all the feedback, all the, you know, the, the hardship that comes with doing stupid things. People mm. make mistakes and the market punishes them. 
and then people don't make that mistake again or, 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 or not anytime soon. It's funny because we have actually evolved our economy now to more replicate China than China has to replicate us. We, we've actually said the way we're going to get growth is to centralize and, and, you know, over optimize everything from the top down. And, and to me, that's a big, you know, that's, that's a big part of the problem. And you, you see that in these Chinese ghost towns. We, we laugh at them and we're like, this is what you get with a stupid totalitarian government. Um, but if you drive around America and look at all the pipes in the ground, all the miles of road and street and sidewalk, all the empty malls, uh, uh, you know, in my city, we've got a, a strip mall out on the edge of town that's been vacant for 12 years. It's about halfway filled. They're building a brand new strip mall right next door. It's, it's the same exact thing as the Chinese, you know, ghost city, uh, but just with a veneer of, you know, American exceptionalism, like, you know, latched on over top of it. Yeah. Well, even I, I, I was thinking uh, ahead of our conversation about where I live. So I live in Boston, uh, which has, I think, at best, you know, 17th century infrastructure as far as the roads are concerned. I mean, it's kind of a nightmare to get around. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that after World War II, one of the first things that was, or one of the first transformations of the city or the biggest ones was the installation of the central artery where they effectively bulldozed a bunch of neighborhoods to build I-93, which cuts straight through the city. Right. Um, And so effectively what, we were doing here is we were taking that centrally planned one size fits all model of this glorious multi-lane highway uh, and applying it to a place that maybe didn't benefit all that much from it. That's exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think the important thing in that equation that is often left out because, you know, planners like to focus on the, the kind of injustice of the highway uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of social things that go along with that. Uh, the splitting of neighborhoods, the gutting of communities, the disinvestment in place. But what really happened, I mean, from a financial standpoint, is that the city of Boston opened up lots of land for new development. Mm-hmm. And with any supply demand kind of curve, uh, if you make more of something available for exploitation or for use, you devalue the the value of that. Um, and so the land, the, the actual land within the city of Boston became far less valuable. With, a, with that place being less valuable, with it actually having less dollar value, the whole virtuous cycle of development and redevelopment within the core of it growing like this organic system, becoming more intense and more uh, productive over time, was arrested that, that went away that 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 feedback loop was broken and so you saw you know t- two generations really of decline of of the core of Boston mm-hmm. uh, you know and and all these efforts to try to prop it up by doing these big let's do urban renewal and tear down whole blocks and rebuild things and let's let's run more highways and and let's get more commuters to drive in here and let let's build down more you know tear down more productive buildings and turn them into parking ramps. Uh, this is a model based on a complete misunderstanding of how cities become strong and, and prosperous. It's a, it's a model based on really the, the 1930s Keynesian insights of macro growth. You know, if we can just create a lot of transactions, we'll have a booming economy. And yes, at the macro level, if you measure it that way, that is true. If you go to the block level or the family level, or, or I think the, the best level to measure things at, which is the community level, um, it's all about building wealth and stability over time, which is very different than having a number of transactions. Yeah. So what are the, I guess, what are some of the most constructive things communities can do to create that? organic growth? And then maybe to build on that, what are some of the more destructive things they're doing now or things they're doing now that are running contrary to that effort? I think the the real challenge we have right now, particularly as, you know, desperation grows and, you know, the pandemic has been brutal to cities, but I, I feel like we're kind of in the eye of the hurricane right now where 
you know, while, 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 while that public health part is still raging, the, you know, the, the fallout to local communities, to local businesses is kind of put on hold, right? Like we, we know that's coming. I, I think the difficulty that we face or the challenge that we face is that we're inclined to want to respond to these things in big, bold steps. If you look back to that shovel ready project era, yeah. You know, after 2008, the way we tried to, you know, quote unquote, solve the uh, housing crisis was we gave banks, you know, trillions of dollars. Uh, we, we printed trillions of dollars and, and poured it into a financial system. The idea that we can you know, loan money to people and bail people out and get people moving again, you know, through this kind of top down means. And then from a government side, we said, we're going to do big infrastructure projects and we're going to invest in big solar farms and we're going to invest in, uh, this technology and that technology. And it was, it was, you know, where do we find Elon Musk and give him a billion dollars of subsidy? Uh, as opposed to, you know, what do we do that actually helps make people better off? What we, looking back at that, what we can see is that if we had spent, you know, instead of, uh, you know, one project worth a billion dollars, if we had done a thousand projects that were a million dollars or, or even better, if we had done 10,000 projects that were a hundred thousand uh, dollars, we, we would have made a lot of bad investments, a lot of investments that were really dumb, mm -hmm. but the majority of our investments would be very productive and a, a meaningful percentage of them would be absolutely insanely productive. That's because the most, the most returning thing we can do right now, the highest returning thing is to help our neighborhoods thicken up mm -hmm. and to actually become better places to live, better places to, uh, to be a human in, uh, you know, better places to walk, better places to bike, better places to get around, better places to, uh, set up a family, to set up a business. Uh, to, to have, you know, relatives living nearby that can help with kids or that you can help them in their old age, having, you know, communities of people, human habitat, as I call it in my book. And what we need to do to get there is actually like reassemble our places. Those investments are small. They're, they're sometimes so small that our cities struggle to even do them because we, we, we have created these bureaucracies that orient towards the state and federal capital flows as opposed to the, the needs of our people. So, so what we tell people is, you know, really go out and focus on where people are struggling in your community and then limit your reaction to what, what is the next smallest thing we can do to address this struggle uh, and just start iterating your way to success. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Chuck Marone. I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I hope you don't need convincing that things really need to change. Now, back in 2018, a panel over 700 democracy experts gave America a one in six chance of having a constitutional crisis in the next four years, and I think last week is as close to one as we ever want to get. Now, the political dialogue is divisive for the same reason we see these levels of unrest. Our system of electing people to office isn't responsive to the will of the people, so neither is the government. And if we change the way we choose the winners in elections via reforms such as ranked choice voting and proportional representation, we can make government truly representative of those it serves. Now, Numerous organizations exist solely for this purpose, and a scan of Google or past episodes of this very podcast can direct you to some of the good ones right in your state. And if you're having problems finding one, hit me up. I want to get you connected. You can either visit ydhty.com and fill out the contact us form at the bottom of the homepage, or you can hit me up on social media via the hashtag ydhty. If last week wasn't your call to get involved, consider this message your invitation. Hope you'll join me. And now, back to the episode.
you know, what I'm hearing is there's definitely no one size fits all answer. Number one, it's, it's really up to the communities to figure out kind of what's going to work. And in some cases, skin their knees doing that. Um, the second thing I find super interesting here, it almost seems like the incentive structure is such that as a community, it, I'm being almost pushed to take these grants that authorize inefficient projects. And so in a lot of cases, uh, it, part of the strategy might be just to resist the funding in a way. I mean, am I, am I wrong there? Or, or no, no, you're totally right. And this is, this is the conundrum because – uh, you know, I, I, on one hand, we're very like pro government, right? Like, I, there's a lot of stuff we can do together as local governments to to make things better. Um, but you know, back in 2014, I did a, uh, I gave a talk in Washington D.C. as part of a, a day long thing that the Washington Post did, and the speaker two before me was this guy named Joe Biden, and he was the vice president at the time. Hmm. And he got up on stage and, and two, two speakers before I went on and trust me, the room emptied out after him. So I, I, <laughs> okay. spoke, I spoke to like 10% of the assembled audience. Um, they were there to see him, but uh, he got up and he said, you know, the, the story of America has always been build, build, build. And he was like crew chef pounding on the podium, you know, build, yeah. build, 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 build. And, and I, I you know, great. I, I don't, you know, I, I think that in the last presidential election, we were, uh, you know, got given the choices we were given. And I, you know, don't really take a lot of time dwelling on how people voted there. Uh, but the reality is, is that we were going to get one of two different top-down visions, either a, a you know, kind of a corporate banker top-down vision or a government banker top-down vision. And yeah, what, what, I think we're going to be fed now at the local level is the same thing we were fed in 2009, 10, which is here's a whole bunch of big projects you can do um, as opposed to, you know, where are your people struggling and what are their actual needs? Uh, uh, let me give you a very concrete example. Um, yeah. in, in my community right now, I would say uh, if, if, if we were to just go out and exist, uh, go out and observe and, and watch what's going on and where the most vulnerable people in the community are struggling that they struggle to walk across this one roadway is probably the biggest danger point. Mm -hmm. We have a big five lane highway that runs through the middle of the city and all day, all the time you can see people who are struggling to get across this nasty piece of federal infrastructure. If you go to city hall and you ask them, what, what's the project that you're working on right now? What, what are you doing? What, what's the thing that's taking up your time? The, the big project they're working on right now is a children's museum. Why are they working on a children's museum? Uh, well, they will tell you because we have a lot of at-risk youth. We have a lot of at-risk families. This is all true. Mm -hmm. uh, we have people who are struggling, who could really use a place to go. They've got the whole like sales pitch down. I can tell you why they're working on children's museum and not the much simpler, much easier, much more effective, much higher returning, uh, you know, that would improve people's lives enormously of, of making the crossing of that nasty street a little bit easier. They're working on children's museum because there's a grant at the state for children's museums right now. And if, if, if we latch onto that grant, we can get, you know, a few million dollars to build this new building. Uh, and so there's a whole like local coalition of, uh, the, you know, of the connected, I would say, you know, the, the, the people who make a living applying for grants and working on similar projects. These are private sector people and public sector people. This consortium has kind of coalesced around the big thing we need to do is a children's museum. Is Chuck Marone like against a children's museum? That's, that's, you know, I'm like the Grinch out there saying we don't need a children's museum. We're going to make that the title of this episode, by the way, just full <laughs> yeah, disclosure. Yeah. Right. That's fine. <laughs> so, so, you know, all of a sudden I'm like the bad guy because I don't support a children's museum. But the reality is, is the, the money that the state has allocated for this project as, as worthy as the intentions may be is crowding out all of the really critical, important things we need to be doing. Um, that's true on the government side. It's also true on the, the private sector side. And this is where we, we do ourselves serious self-harm. 
and building on some of the stuff you said before too, of course that children's museum gets built, the town benefits from the revenue of construction, but then they also bear that maintenance cost over the long term that may not be revenue positive effectively. Correct. That that's, that's my, that's my only winning argument here. You know, we, we have parks that, are falling apart because we can't maintain them. We have a library that needs, you know, huge amounts of investment. We have, we have all these things that were these same projects of the past that we now struggle and, and are literally falling apart in front of our eyes. Why would we build another one? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny too, like, because, you know, growing up in Boston, I, I live in the same neighborhood I grew up in and, you know, I, I mean, my town's going to be turning 400 in another 10 years. So yeah, you know, it's very, very dense and compact. And, you know, I can walk to the store, I can walk to the train, like I, it's very walkable. If I, I mean, I don't even have to go out as far as the Midwest, I can go, you know, 45 minutes uh, outside of the city. And community is much more different, you know, much different. Um, you know, much larger lot sizes, much less walkable. It's almost similar to that way you describe um, describe where you live, um, right? And and so, th- I guess one question I have is, you know, for my town, it's easy. Like we're already compact. People are already dividing up lots and building multifamily dwellings. Like we have not. There's nowhere else to go in this town. But if you're one of those, again, if you're your town or you're one of these towns, you know, in the exurbs of Boston, how do you unwind all that? Like, what is, is there a strategy for really changing the infrastructure for the better? Yeah, it's the million dollar question, right? So I think it's important to, to note that your community, and I, I don't know the place you live, uh, but l- l- let me just put this out there because I think a lot of places will look and say, uh, and you didn't say this specifically, but let me, let me, let me put this in the mouth of somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, we're already a nice little village. We're already a nice town. We're already like a great place. Um, and so, you know, the, the change needs to happen somewhere else. Uh, I, I think it's important to just step back and recognize that, through the human, the human habitat, the human development pattern, our cities, this, this co-evolved kind of thing that, that we created to be our habitat. If you look at those throughout history, the, the pace of change slows down as they become more mature, but it never stops. You, you always have this, uh, renewal process where, you know, a, a, a duplex is torn down and made into a quad unit mm-hmm. and a quad unit is, is rehab to be turned into eight units and eight units are, are, are torn down and combined with a neighboring building to build a, a, a 40 unit place. And that is ultimately torn down and, and put into a 200 unit place. Th- this from our current economics, this sometimes seems crazy. Like how could that ever happen? Because th- th- there's no relation to the underlying land values. But you can go to, you know, you, you can go to Manhattan where it's, it's distant enough from the suburban development pattern where, uh, it's, it's, it's barely affected by its gravity. And you can actually see in parts of Queens and Brooklyn and Manhattan where this, this process is still occurring because the, the underlying land values are enormous. Mm. They're just astounding. So your question was, wh- what do we do in, in places not like yours? Yeah. Where, where, you know, to me, when we look at yours, we have to get that evolutionary process back going. Like we need to allow all buildings to be adapted and changed. And, and, and I think that same mindset needs to go out to other places. And so if you look at the suburbs, I, I think you can think of it this way. Um, we have, uh, you know, one tenth to, to one fifth. So 10% or 20% of the budget we need to maintain all the stuff we've built. That's a, that's a, probably a pretty good number for most suburbs. So that means that taxes, if they go up, we're still going to say goodbye to, you know, Detroit style, half of our neighborhoods or more. How do you make that decision? What, you know, what neighborhood is we're going to walk away from what neighborhood we're going to keep. And to me, I just start with, what neighborhood is willing to adapt right now? 
Mm. Um, what neighborhood can I create some critical mass in? So if neighborhood A is going to allow their single family homes to turn into duplexes and they're going to allow the corner lots to add corner stores, you know, not like big gas stations with lights and traffic, but, uh, you know, a store that would serve the neighborhood, uh, something that would, would be walkable. If, if, if this neighborhood's going to allow that, but the other neighborhood's going to say, nope, we're single family homes with cul-de-sacs and we'll never change. When I get to budget decision time and I got to decide, you know, do I, do I invest in maintaining infrastructure in neighborhood A or neighborhood B? I pick the neighborhood that's allowing me to, uh, to, to grow more productive. You know, the place with the momentum that that's where I'm putting my money into. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the decisions coming, whether it's voluntary or forced on us and ultimately to your point, the communities that choose to adapt to these changes are going to be the most successful and um, kind of getting back to what I said about my hometown. Uh, yeah, it's walkable. It's dense. It's, it's got a good quality of life, but there's also now resistance to development. And, you know, that's the flip side of that, which is, um, you know, in our community, if, you're trying to build a, a multifamily dwelling or trying to build an apartment building, you're going to get a lot of pushback uh, from folks in the town who kind of like it the way it was. Cause of course we're, you know, really provincial and set in our ways out here. So um, let me, let me run yeah, this by please. You. Cause I, I, I get this a lot and it's, it's a, it's a very common thing. You know, I found a beautiful neighborhood. I like it. It's, it's exactly what strong town says we should have nice walkable neighborhood. I never want it to change. Um, have you ever been to Charleston, South Carolina? You yeah. never know. It, it is gorgeous. If you go through the old part of Charleston, it, it's like a museum. It's just beautiful. Just one beautiful building after another in beautiful streets and beautiful neighborhoods. It, it is just exquisitely gorgeous. If you get outside of that core neighborhood, it goes horrible really fast. It, it is, it's, it's, it's putrid. It's ugly. It's, it's not well-maintained. It's, it really struggles. The Charleston has always posed this interesting thing for me because I've been to cities like Milan. You know, I remember when I first flew into Milan uh, it was my first trip to Europe and they said, you know, look out the window, you can see Milan. And I looked out and I'm like, where is it? Cause I was expecting, you know, Milan is a city of millions of people and this, you know, big capital in European culture. I was looking for skyscrapers and what I thought of as a city, you know, I was a dumb American. I'd never been to Europe before. Um, I don't know if there's a building in Milan besides, you know, churches and what have you, that's, that's over six stories. Um, you know, if you look at a place like Charleston, what you are seeing is the pattern of Charleston maturing as it was arrested in its development of three generations ago. So you, you are looking at a museum piece and, and it's a novelty because everything around it is, is junk. And, and so, you know, we can look at this and say, we can never change this because it's, it's so amazing, but if the evolution of that place had continued the way it had for, you know, the hundreds of years up to that point, what you should see is in that core of Charleston should be three more generations of maturing. You shouldn't have two story buildings and three story buildings that are these Southern, you know, kind of gorgeous plantation looking places and, and, and great. You should have buildings that are four stories and six story versions of Charleston. And then surrounding that should not be junky neighborhoods. It should be literally miles and miles of stuff that looks like the gorgeous stuff we like in Charleston today. That's what maturing should look like. And so instead of, well, instead of preserving like historic Charleston under a bubble, what we should be doing is just building way, way, way more of it. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting you say that because – one of the other things I was thinking, and this is definitely the case in Boston, probably the case in Charleston, or Charleston, excuse me, is that uh, when you contain development, as happens a lot here, uh, 
property values tend to rise with that. Uh, folks kind of have to migrate further out and that sprawl effect just continues. I'm sorry. It sounds like you had something to say there. No, no, you, you wind up, you know, financially you wind up with gentrified communities that are kind of, you know, homogenous in, in a bunch of different ways. You, you get a pot of rich people here Mm. and a pot of poor people over there. And, you know, your communities start to become radicalized politically, radicalized socially. We don't talk to each other. We become fearful. It, 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 it reinforces, you know, all the negative patterns from a civic standpoint that we see today and, and from a financial standpoint as well. Yeah. That's what, what scares me, uh, especially about Boston specifically. Uh, and, and I think this goes on in a lot of cities is that you are having this, you're creating this environment where the wealthy and privileged can live within proximity of the city and those who make less money have to live further out. And, you know, we're a town, I'm, I'm proud to say we're a town where, you know, we're right next to the city. Uh, the police force can still afford to live here. The fire department can. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be the case in another five to 10 years. And conversely, I look at a city like San Francisco, for example, where your typical civil servant can't afford to live within 90 minutes of it. And I just don't feel that's any way to run a society. Yeah. I, I wrote a whole, we, oh, we wrote a lot about California this year. Um, to me, California is like the unfolding American tragedy. Uh, you know, it, it was a place that really the bones of it matured in that post-war boom, mm. right? So if you go to a city like Sacramento, what you'll see is that their old town is like four, you know, four square blocks of, you know, country museum. You know, it's a, like, literally you can walk around on wood sidewalks. Uh, it's a museum piece. You, you walk around and, and you can see, you know, you, you can buy candy from a soda fountain and you can, you know, get tourist uh, shirts and stuff. And, and it's, it is literally a museum piece and it's surrounded by highways and interstates and, and post-war development. New, you know, California suffers from, Every problem of the post-war development pattern, like on steroids, yeah. you know, the insolvency of their municipal governments, the reaction, you know, with Prop 13 to say, okay, we don't like the effect that this is having on our budget. So let's just from the top down freeze, uh, you know, freeze everyone's taxes. So no one can not afford to live here anymore. And, and the, the, you know, you see decades later, you know, the, the huge push to build out to get more tax base. Uh, kind of pitting local governments against their own citizens in many ways. Uh, you see the citizens, you know, uh, kind of being trapped in this system where if you move, your taxes go way up. And so nobody moves. And so housing prices become, housing becomes very scarce. And then you don't want your neighborhood to change and evolve. So they don't build any housing. It, 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 and then you overlay it with this, you know, kind of cultural conversation that is, uh, you know, uh, dysfunctional on the right and, and dysfunctional on the left in, in ways that th- there's hardly any, you know, way to overlap or even resolve it in a real world. And yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it was, it was funny because, you know, we've had these really, I was going to say silly. They're not silly because I think they maybe foreshadow the, the difficulty that we are going to face in the future. But we've had these conversations about, you know, should California secede from the U.S.? And California's like, we'd be better off without the drag of having to yeah. be with Texas mm-hmm. and Alabama and all these backward, you know, uh, authoritarian Republicans. And I look at it and go, you know, we might all be better off if California left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like that, that might, I, I, I love California. I love going yeah. there. I, I really, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a wonderful place, but, uh, man, they got a lot of, it, it's almost like that, that family member that, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be like, yeah, you might want to go on your own yeah. for a while. You, you've got some, you've got some issues you to go work figure through. that one out. 
<laughs> yeah. Like don't, don't, don't be projecting onto us. You know, you go figure that out. We're not perfect. We got a lot of stuff to work on. Uh, but you, you, maybe we'd be better off without you here for a yeah. while. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got one more, I've got actually two more questions for you. Um, yeah, the first one's going to kind of flip that on its head, which is that it, it, one of the strengths of, of America uh, as a country is the fact that we have this enormous pool of resources. And in a lot of cases, uh, we can, as they say, if you want to travel fast, go alone. If you want to travel far, go to get or go together. And, and I think we benefit from, from being able to pool our, our resources together. And, and I think, and I was thinking before we spoke about some of the larger public works projects that had a positive, a benefit, positive benefit. So um, one of the things that came to mind was, you know, the transcontinental railroad, um, and and I mean I don't know if you disagree, but Eisenhower's highway system, you know, developed post World War II. It certainly contributed to the sprawl. Um, but I, from a commercial perspective, uh, there was there was some there was some benefit there. Um, I guess it's so interesting because I I I agree in like ten percent agree, okay, but ninety percent disagree. You know, yeah. Tell me tell me where um, I'm wrong here. Like, yeah. I, well, I, I thought you were gonna like. I thought you were gonna go Hoover Dam too. Like, you know, well, we built well, the Hoover Dam and created. Yeah, like I guess. Know? I guess that's the question. Is like, <laughs> if if there is a big project to be done, you know, if there is yeah. a, if there is some large scale project that would benefit the nation, um, right? How do we allow that so without it getting out of control? Yeah. yeah. Here, here's the here's the insight, and I, I think this is really really important. Um. If we look at ancient Rome, we, we, we can think in our minds, like, what is ancient Rome? And, and we think the Colosseum, right? And we think the Forum, and we think Circus Maximus, and we think, like, you know, all these, like, grand buildings. Uh, th- this, is what, this is what comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that Rome, uh, you know, none of those things were built until centuries and centuries of successful Roman development had been created. We do things the exact opposite today. In America, we look at Rome and we say, yeah, Rome was great. They had a Colosseum. Let's go build a Colosseum. Yeah. And, and, and we think we're going to get Rome from that. Yep. And, and the, the curse of having too much resources is that you can stop thinking. You, you, can, you can just jump to the end condition that you want and say, this is what we're going to create. So the problem with building the Hoover Dam is not that the Hoover Dam was not great. It was that it, it was, it was, it was the wrong place to start. The problem with building the interstates is not that the interstates are not helpful. It's just the, the wrong place to start. And so what happens in our model is you go out and build the Hoover Dam and then everyone says, wow, that was successful. That was great. Look at, we created all these jobs. We created all this power. We created, uh, you know, this, this, uh, new ecosystem that's serving mankind better off. It, isn't it wonderful? And then we go out and build literally 50,000 more dams across this country under the same program and the same guys and the same idea. And these are dams that are falling in today, are, are silted in, need massive amounts of maintenance, uh, are, are, have just destroyed natural ecosystems. And we're like, oh, crap, now our cities are flooding and you know all this other stuff we don't want to have happen because we went on this spree. We, we built interstates and the interstates connected cities. And we're like, wow, this is transforming economies. Isn't this wonderful? You know what we need? We need another 70 years of interstate building. And so now you have cities, you know, spending billions of dollars on crazy interchanges, bringing four different highways together in, in elevated loops so that they can cut travel time from seven, you know, miles an hour, uh, up to nine miles an hour. You know, it, 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 this is insanity. It's, it's crazy. And it's, it's crazy because we started in the wrong place. We started with the Coliseum mm-hmm. and said, if it works great here uh, and we can, you know, we'll always be able to justify that uh, we can then, you know, repeat this over and over and over. And what we should have done is built a bunch of Roman baths and a bunch of, uh, you know, little theaters at the local level. And then, you know, had the success of all of those prompt the, the, the desire to, and the need to build the Coliseum. 
That that's the way it works. That's the way success builds on itself and builds on you know prior successes. That's how we learn from things. If we had built you know five thousand dams in this country and started to recognize the long term costs of them, the ramifications, the environmental issues, uh, you know all the stuff that went along with it, we never would have built fifty thousand dams. We built one big dam, and we we made that like the centerpiece of our American culture and persona. Like this is what government can do if we all just come together. And as you say, you know, we can all travel further working together. Yeah. We can travel further, you know, in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. We're headed towards Mordor. Let's all yeah. go further. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I'm, I, the, the thing is, is like the Hoover Dam is great. I toured it. It's, it's a marvel. I mean, as an engineer, it's, it's hard not to be super impressed with this. Um, and, you know, we will always have – humans will always have hubris and overreach. Uh, that's part of the human condition. That's part of, you know, what, what our – go read the Old Testament. I mean, that, that's essentially like what mankind yeah. is, is these, these large periods of overreach and then consolidation. The, the, the problem that we have is that we have overreached in a, a ludicrously stupid way. Uh, because we had immense resources and could put off a- a- any reckoning for the things we were doing. And so now we find ourselves in this intractable place and, and we're faced with the reality that human history is a series of, you know, overreaches followed by painful periods of retrenchment and consolidation. And we're desperate to avoid that part right now. But this got dark fast. Yeah, right? man. Well, hey, that's all right. I like dark. I like dark. Um, last question for you. So if I'm listening to this and I want to have an impact on my community, what are what are some of the ways I can take action? Uh, very cool. So we, we have – our strategic plan has three parts. Uh, we say here's here's how we are trying to carry out our mission. We, we create content, we distribute content, and we use that to nudge people to take action. Um, we've done a really, really strong job of the first two. Uh, we've seen a lot of gains in the second two, but they've been more as a byproduct as opposed to something intentional we've mm. done. We're starting to get more intentional about answering that question. What can I do? And so we have launched are launching uh, this thing called the Strong Towns Action Lab. Uh, people can get it at actionlab.strongtowns.org. On that site, we are putting together uh, tools and resources for people to deal with uh, taking, you know, to take action on whatever problem they see as the most urgent in their community. Uh, does that mean finding other people to work with? We're going to try to help people with that. Does that mean, uh, you know, working on a street in their neighborhood or a project in their neighborhood? Whether you're a mayor or a city council member or a professional staff or uh, especially if you are just a concerned citizen, someone who wants to see their neighborhood be better. We're, we're trying to put these resources there so that people can, 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 can do stuff. Uh, we can help them identify and, and take that next step. I, I would simplify it all down by saying this. Um, as a lone person, there's not much you're going to be able to do. Uh, you can take care of yourself and you can take care of your family and you can make yourself more stable and resilient. And that's helpful and you need to do that. Uh, but if you want to make change in your community, you, you got to find a tribe. You got to find a pack. You got to find a group of people that, to, that, that you can work with. Uh, you, you, when you do that, you have to then turn and say, all right, uh, what are the struggles that we see? And what is the small thing that we can do to make this struggle a little bit better. Mm. I, I think we get paralyzed because we feel like we need to solve problems. I was uh, a scrawny, underweight, you know, little kid when I was small and all my friends were big. And so on the football team, I got, you know, put on the, 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 the small kids mm. team. And I asked to get put on the big kids team because that, that's where all my friends were. Um, so I just got beat up all yeah. the time. And, and I remember the advice that one of my coaches gave. He said, if you lock up your feet and push, you're going to, you're going to get run over. You're, you're not big enough. You, you're just, you, you can't push someone over. 
The way you're going to make progress is to keep your feet moving all the time. Little steps, just little, 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 little steps. Keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And that was very effective. And, and I keep that in my head today because I think oftentimes as local groups of people wanting to make change, we lock our legs and we push on one thing and we just push and push and push. And that thing is bigger than us and it's stronger than us and it's going to push us over. But if we can keep our feet moving, if we can just keep moving and taking little steps, little steps, little steps, little steps, we start to build momentum. We start to grow our group. We start to grow our pack. We start to become more effective. We start to learn from our mistakes and and we can start to do things that are absolutely amazing. If you didn't start playing SimCity halfway through this episode, you have no soul. Now that out of the way, that site again is actionlab.strongtowns.org. And if you like this episode and would like to share it, please do. And if you are not a subscriber, consider this your invitation to do thusly. Now, as Chuck said, the pattern of cities has been to trade long-term maintenance costs for the short-term fiscal injection of new construction. And much of that is fueled by the way state and federal governments fund projects. And it really strikes at the root of the inefficiencies created when federal government isn't responsive to what's going on at the local level. Now, a similar episode you may want to listen to is June 25th, which explores the theory as to whether the U.S. has turned into a fully-fledged, centrally-planned economy. It is a bong-worthy theory, if ever there were one. Per usual, music courtesy of Norway's finest Quellertak, Editorial advisor for YDHTY is the ad man, Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in sultry North Carolina, United States of America by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.